Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. So I've been thinking a lot about protest lately and protest movements and things like that. I'm on the email list. This is going to sound like a random aside, but stick with me. I'm on the email list for Penzi's Spice, which is, you know, a high-end spice store. We have one here in Arlington, Massachusetts, and they have them throughout the country. But my wife turned me onto this email list. Bill Penzi is the CEO and founder of Penzi's Spice, and he basically uses his newsletter to talk about social issues. And sometimes they tie into a promotion of some kind. Sometimes they're just to bring awareness to different things. And he is very outspoken politically to the left, but unafraid to express his point of view and to say, here's where we stand. And if you want to buy your oregano from us, you can. And if you don't want to, there's plenty of other options. So anyways, that's just been a fun little newsletter that, you know, it comes, I don't know, maybe twice a week or so. But over the weekend, I was made aware that Easter just happened, obviously, on April 4th. But it was also the 53rd anniversary of the killing of Dr. Martin Luther King. And Bill Penzi's newsletter was about those two different events, the resurrection of Jesus and the death of King. And, you know, it's just been having me think more about the life of Dr. King in particular. And he is somebody that I've always admired and studied. I remember going to the National Mall and seeing his monument within the first year of it being built and uh, just being really affected by his life story and the work that he did. So the fact that here we are now, 53 years since his assassination in Memphis, and you know, when I was in Memphis, I went to the Civil Rights Museum, which is there at the Lorraine Motel, and that was very moving. Anyways, all that is just to say, here we are, the season of Easter and the season of Dr. King. And, you know, it, it's time to talk about social movements and justice and peace. So my guest today is Michael G. Long. He's an author that's written a lot of amazing books for adults, really on social justice and protest movements and things like that. Jackie Robinson has been his subject. Dr. King has been his subject. He's talked about even Mr. Rogers and Billy Graham. And, you know, it's really kind of across the spectrum, but um, really interesting guy. He's been looking at, at protest movements for a long time, and he's got this new book that just came out in March called Kids on the March, and it's 15 stories of speaking out, protesting, and fighting for justice. It's an amazing book. I mean, first of all, let me just say, as an adult, I enjoyed reading it, but it is geared towards kids. It's probably, I would say, fifth grade, maybe at the youngest, and right through like high school age, people can get things from it. But he takes stories of protest movements starting in the early 20th century and going all the way through really to, to today. I mean, he talks about George Floyd in there. He talks about the Women's March, March for Our Lives, the School Strike for Climate, lots of big, important events that have happened in, in relatively recent history. And he breaks it down for kids, why they should care about these things, but he also tells the story of these protest movements from the perspective of kids. There were kids there during all these marches. In some cases, like the March for Our Lives, kids were major organizers of it. And in other times, they were simply participants. But, you know, every move for workers' rights, for social justice, for racial equality, for gender equality, children have been a part of the movement. And he helps tell their story and he helps break it down two young kids. And I hope inspire kids to really get involved and to understand the importance of speaking out, the importance of using your voice. 
So anyways, just, you know, thinking about Dr. King, thinking about, you know, the events that had happened 53 years ago in Memphis this week, and thinking about where we are now, it's an important conversation for these times. And I think, too, as COVID starts lifting, as we start figuring out how we move forward, I hope we're not going back to the same world that we left behind in, you know, March of 2020. I hope we all emerge from this cocoon changed with a different perspective on how we treat each other, a different perspective on how we view racial inequities in this country, on how we view social justice, and on how we help each other out. So who knows where it's going to end up, but that's my feeling. I did talk to Michael about two weeks ago, I guess we recorded this interview. So just if you hear references to events in the news, they're about two weeks old at this point, but it's still a fascinating conversation. Go get his book, Kids on the March, 15 Stories of Speaking Out, Protesting, and Fighting for Justice. Here it is, my conversation with Michael G. Long. So I want to start by just sort of asking about this past crazy year of COVID. What has the last 12 months or so been like for you? For me, in terms of my research, it's been fascinating because uh, we've seen some COVID-related protests, right? And so we've seen protests against health-related disparities. More recently, just in the past couple of days, we've seen anti-lockdown protests in London and in Europe, anti-restriction protests. And here in the United States, in Los Angeles, we've seen some anti-vaccine protests. So COVID has really affected the content of protests. Yeah, right. We've also seen more recently some protests against discrimination against Asian Americans. So it's been a fascinating period in terms of tracking some of these protests. And COVID has also affected the method of protest, too, if you'd like to talk about that. Sure. Yeah. Tell me more. It's been interesting to me to try to gauge the morality of protesting in a time of COVID. (laughs) Yeah. In the United States, we have the right we say, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I like to think that's my right, that's your right, that's the right of our fellow Americans. But we also have this peculiar right to assemble peacefully and petition our government. So sometimes, and I, I think we see this in COVID, our rights in terms of protest and living come into conflict. I want to enjoy the right to live. But I also want my fellow Americans to have the right to protest and to do so peacefully. So trying to negotiate these different rights as they conflict with each other isn't always easy. I do believe in a period of COVID that it would be problematic, even unconstitutional, to tell people that they don't have a right to assemble peacefully. I do. At the same time, Given our right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, I think we should focus mostly on our obligations to one another and our right to assemble peacefully, but our obligation to do so in a way that is responsible, in a way that respects the conditions of assembling in groups during a period of COVID. So, you know, I, I like to think that in this COVID era, we will all act responsibly and, and wear masks and social distance responsibly and follow the guidelines put out by the CDC. 
and if prefer uh, protests that are outside rather than inside. Sure. Oh my gosh, COVID really affects protests. It's been <laughs> interesting to see it this past year. Yeah, well, you know, I'm curious though, some of the ones that you mentioned there, you know, specifically around like anti-vax protesting or anti-lockdown protesting, those people are coming to those protests with a different assumption, I guess, about the level of risk and the level of spread and things like that. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's just an interesting context to say, how do you peacefully protest during a pandemic if the pandemic might be the thing you're protesting against, right? Right. And we can see some of this uh, falling along traditional political lines, right? Yep, sure. And so conservatives tend to be the ones who are protesting restrictions and who are protesting lockdowns. That's yep. not altogether true, but that tends to be true. And liberals and progressives tend to be the ones who are protesting against discrimination against communities of color that are disproportionately affected by COVID or on their behalf, I mean, and who are protesting uh, discrimination against Asian Americans during this COVID period as well. So there are some political fault lines, too. But, yeah, it's it's complicated and 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 nuanced. Right, protesting COVID is itself problematic. Right. Well, but you know, also too, I'm thinking of you know the protests last summer around the killing of George Floyd and you know the big Black Lives Matter movement and things that that really sort of ignited out of that. And you know, when that first started, I was certainly nervous watching it and saying, "Oh boy, you know, should people really be taking to the streets right now?" I mean, especially we were what, two or three months into this thing at that point. And a lot of people had really been home at that point without having gone out at all. And then it's sort of like, well, if we don't have this conversation now, when is the right to, like, you kind of have to to seize the moment. You know, like, I just remember sort of weighing that as I was watching all those those protests unfold last summer. I went to a protest here in the capital region of Pennsylvania, uh-huh. in downtown Harrisburg, actually, right next to the capital. And some of my fellow progressives were not wearing masks Hmm. and they weren't social distancing. I dare say that many of them (laughs) were not wearing masks and social distancing at that point. And to tell you the truth, I felt a sense of negligence toward my own family, maybe a a sense of a lack of responsibility toward my family. Uh Uh, for being there, I had really mixed feelings. You know, if my son came home today and said that he wanted to go to a protest, I would definitely have mixed feelings. You know, if we were, this gets to the conflict of rights and interests. If we were a great cause, you know, I'm behind it. Uh, if he wanted to go with his friends, I'm behind it. But I would make him promise to wear a mask and to practice social distancing. And even if he does that, you know, I still have a sense that that might not happen. I know how right. teenagers act, yeah. but I at least would want to get those commitments from him. Yeah, it's a lot. Uh, it's a lot to juggle right now. Well, you know, speaking of teenagers and, you know, young people, you have this new book out, Kids on the March, which you've written a lot for adults uh, sort of in this area around, you know, protests and social movements and things. But this is the first time that you've not only written a book for kids, but with kids as the subject. And I wonder sort of where the uh, the inspiration for this book came from. Well, the inspiration for it comes from a couple of different places. Part of it comes from my adult research into adults who have protested throughout U.S. history. And one of the best things about conducting this type of research is that I get to look at 
historic photos uh-huh. in the hundreds and thousands. And I would always see kids in some of these photos, you know, they would be on the margins of the photos. They might be in the upper left or the lower left-hand corner, the upper right or the lower right-hand corner, or tucked away somewhere in the middle. And I always wondered what their stories were. What were they doing there? How did they get there? Were they part of the protest? And so these questions kept bubbling up for me. And I love the fact that I'm studying history from the margins and then finding marginalized people within these marginalized protests. So that was one inspiration. Another inspiration comes from my own background. As a kid, I was a victim of injustice perpetrated by an abuser. And several of us who were in that condition went to talk to some adults who were authority figures. And, you know, they sort of listened to us, but they really didn't do anything about it. And I think we felt silenced. I know when we were silenced. And, yeah. and that has always stuck with me. And so when I felt as if I had the chance to amplify kids' voices, uh, kids who have experienced injustices, uh, I jumped right into it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because there are, of course, examples where you can draw a straight line from you know a protest movement to actual meaningful change. But mm-hmm. there's also a number of examples in the book where things don't change, or it may take a generation to change. And, you know, I wonder, you know, why include both those versions in the book? Why is that messaging important for kids? The messaging is important for a couple of reasons. One, I want them to be realistic about their opportunities and chances for success. Success is not always on the immediate horizon when we conduct protests. In fact, it's often not to be seen. It's often invisible. It's often so far out on the horizon that we can barely see it. So I want them to be realistic about uh, their chances of success. But I also want them to know that they stand in the line in a tradition of a lot of people who experienced the same thing and who helped us to get to a point where we are today in terms of peace and justice but had no idea that we would be where we are today. Mm. So I want them to to realize that they stand in this great stream of protests from U.S. history. Some of it succeeded. Some of it didn't. Some of it took a long time to succeed. You know, I look at March for Our Lives, for example, just a recent protest where the kids from Parkland, Florida, uh, protested for gun safety measures in part. At that time, uh, President Trump was in office and there was no federal action, no federal response, no substantive federal response to the March for Our Lives, which was an historic protest engineered by kids. And yet there were some small victories. Uh, Different states around the country passed gun control laws and did so on scales that they hadn't seen before. And so there were some small victories, and I think we'll continue to see small victories building on small victories. And we may even see some federal action in the next few years. And so I like that protest because we don't see immediate federal action, but I think that protest will eventually lead to federal action. And we'll be able to look back on that protest as an important point in the movement toward reasonable, rational gun control legislation. Right. Well, I noticed, too, you know, there were examples of uh, school integration and and, uh, school segregation and things like that, Uh, you know, going back to like the 1950s, 1960s. You touch on a couple of examples of those in the book. And 
one of the things that struck me was these were public high schools primarily that you're you're citing, but oftentimes there are college kids getting involved as well. And just that idea that, you know, it, it's the same thing with March for Our Lives, I guess, that you want to see immediate action when it affects you in that circumstance. When you're that high school student, you don't want guns on that campus, but it may take a while. And, you know, I, I guess I just wondered, like, what you learned about sort of momentum and, you know, if you are these 16-year-old kids that are affected by a tragedy, what does it take to keep that going if you have to fight until you're, you know, 25 to get action or do you have to hand it off to another generation? Yes, I think that handing off to another generation is a really important method in protests that we often ignore and neglect. So I'm really glad you brought this up. I also think that just handing off to other people within our generation, perhaps when we feel burned out, or so deflated that we can't go on is also another really important tool. You raised the issue of the 1951 campaign for the desegregation of schools in Virginia. And this is a really fascinating campaign to me because Barbara Johns, who at this point was a black student at the all-black school in Farmville, Virginia, called Moton Senior High, who decided that she was going to have a strike for a better school. And she did this because her school had tar paper shacks for a school that had way too many kids in it. The initial school had been built for 200-some kids, and then the tar paper shacks were supposed to accommodate an extra 200 or so, and that simply didn't happen. And you can imagine how dirty it was in these tar paper shacks and that the heating was awful, there were leaks and so forth. And so Barbara Johns gets this brilliant idea that she's going to have a strike, and she goes out on strike. And eventually the NAACP gets involved. This is really interesting to me. Robert Johns is fighting for a better school. And the NAACP, the adults come along and say, we'll help you, but we'll help you only if you push for an integrated school. And Barbara Johns, a kid at the time, is smart enough and flexible enough to adjust. And so I hope kids will see her example as an example of the need to adjust and to be flexible and sometimes to rely on adults as well. And eventually the story ends great, right? It ends on May 17th, 1954, when the Supreme Court decides that segregation in public schools is unconstitutional. And indeed, part of that case is Barbara John's case. It's a beautiful case in the book. Yeah, no. And, it, you know, one of the things I think that struck me about it, too, was just like you say, that flexibility piece that you need to be willing, I guess, to listen to the other side and sort of have an end goal in mind, I guess, that it may not be in her case, I guess it was I want a new school building. And at the time it was a segregated school building. But somebody mm-hmm. else says, well, no, the only way you're really going to get something fair is if it's an integrated school and it's for black mm-hmm. and white children. And to say, yeah, no, that makes sense. You know, I, I think so often we get so caught up in what our own end goal is or what we think the end goal should be that, you know, you kind of miss the forest for the trees, I guess. Yeah. I'll just add here that the beauty of youthful activists and young activists is that they have a purity of cause Mm. that so many of us don't have. And this is the other side of the point here, Heath, that I'm pointing out. You know, many of us who are adults 
have been through the ringer and we're so ready to compromise sometimes <laughs> yeah. just so that we can take that first small step. And some of the beauty of the kids who come into these protests and who lead them is that they have a purity of cause and they say, darn it, no, we're not going to back down. Uh, in this case, in the Barbara Johns case, she knew that flexibility was important because it would serve her cause. Right. And that's what happened in the long run. But I love kids for the energy and the focus and the purity that they often bring to causes. Yeah. I was really interested, too, because you talk about sort of the historical roots of all this. And, you know, you paint a picture of some marches from the 20th century and protest movements. But there's a big focus also put on more contemporary things from the 21st century. And I mean, not even <laughs> the early 21st century. Your first example is the Justice for Trevon Martin uh, protest in 2012. And then as we've talked about March for Our Lives and School Strike for Climate, George Floyd protests, a lot of very, very contemporary examples. And it felt like that was a deliberate choice to root it in the very here and now. Yeah, it definitely was. I'm still amazed when I remember that the Trevon case is now 10 years old. Yeah. But wow, what a movement that case sparked, including the Black Lives Matter movement, of course. Right. But yeah, the book goes the whole way up to 2020 and really 2021 as well. And it ends with the George Floyd protests. And I love this particular case too, because of the lessons it teaches us. So in Berkeley, California, and let's just pause here and remember that Berkeley is ground zero for progressive radical politics. Sure, yeah. It's no central Pennsylvania where I live. <laughs> <laughs> it's no central Pennsylvania. And Shayla Avery is watching the news about George Floyd, about his death, his murder, some say, and about the protests that emerged from it. She's watching this on TV. She's watching it on her social feed. She's listening to it on podcasts and so forth. And she says to herself, you know, we've got to do something about this. And she texts this to her friend. We can get the texting and how important that is in a moment. But she texts her friend, we have to do something. And what's interesting about Shayla Avery is that she's deeply affected by George Floyd's murder and the injustice and the protests. But she takes that national case and she connects it to her home community as well. And as she's looking at the protests, she's thinking to herself, you know, my school teachers aren't talking about George Floyd and they're not talking about the protests as much as I think they should be. This is in Berkeley, California. If it's yeah. if that's not happening in Berkeley, you can imagine uh, where else it's not happening. And so she gets the idea with her two friends that they should stage a march through downtown Berkeley and end at the high school. I love the symbolism. So they have this beautiful march. They rent a truck. Uh, they get drummers and make beautiful murals. They march through downtown Berkeley. They end in front of the high school and they paint Black Lives Matter right in front of the high school. It's a beautiful, symbolic march. But she does force, as I understand it, she does force the local school to make some changes, which is beautiful. That's It's, it's so good when we see kids who take protests of national importance and then apply them to their local communities. That's another beautiful thing that kids have. And that is not only this sense of uh, what's going on nationally, but they have a they have a vision that is in their neighborhoods, yeah. that is in their home schools, and I think sometimes we adults uh, forget that. Yeah, well, I think a lot of these movements, 
if you didn't start them on a local level and let them grow, you know, if, if somebody just came in and said, I want to start a national movement about X, it would be mm-hmm. a lot harder <laughs> to get there. But mm-hmm. if you can start mm-hmm. local at kind of the grassroots level and build it up, uh, it, mm-hmm. it happens a lot faster. Uh, I, I was struck too. There was a story that I didn't know in the book. Um, this um, group called the Bonus Army. That these were World War One vets that um, were due money from the government and were basically promised at the height of the Great Depression, you'll get it in. It was like thirteen years or something, right? Like it was a long right. deferred payment. Uh, and so they came and, and marched on Capitol Hill. And as I was reading that passage. I felt uh, some similarities to January 6th, and I'm curious, like, there has been a lot of talk around that date, and, you know, is it a protest? If you're on the right, I think people call that a protest. A lot of other people call it a riot or, you know, an attempted coup or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, like, you know, as as you research different protest movements, how do you determine what's a protest and what's something more violent or more nefarious? Mm, that is a great question, Heath. If you've got the answer, let me know. <laughs> it's, not, <laughs> it's not an easy, it's not an easy thing to define. Yeah. Uh, but for, in my work, I focus on a couple of things. I focus on protests that tend to be nonviolent direct action. Uh-huh. And so I also tend to focus on nonviolent direct action campaigns that are progressive. And so all of the protests in the book focus on nonviolent direct action campaigns that are progressive. And the nonviolent direct action campaign tends to be those protests. <laughs> I use the word in the definition, right? <laughs> those protests that are, that include such things as sit-ins, occupations, marches, rallies, boycotts. They're different from the traditional political methods of letter writing, uh, petitioning, and so forth. And so that's my focus. Now, how do I distinguish that from uh, the storming of the Capitol on January 6th? It's interesting you went to the 1932 bonus march. And during the 1932 bonus march, the bonus army, as they referred to themselves, occupied Washington, D.C., parts of Washington, D.C., and they occupied neighborhoods and areas around the Capitol, and they constructed tents and shacks and shanties and so forth, and these Army veterans also brought their families. That's why I included it in the book, because kids are part of this occupation of the Capitol. It's one of the first Occupy movements in our nation's history. It differs fundamentally, I think, from this most recent protest in two different ways. One is that these veterans tended to be nonviolent. The most recent group tended to be violent. And the the bonus marchers also had a progressive cause, and that is helping poor people. This most recent uh, January 6th storming was not so much a progressive cause uh, in the sense that it was calling for the overturning of a digitally elected president. And so that was problematic as well. But I I do want to talk a little bit about the importance of violence and nonviolence in these protests, if I may. Sure. Yeah, of course. Okay. So nonviolent protests tend to be uh, more effective than violent protests. People are more attractive to protests if they're nonviolent. And organizers are more effective 
at not only attracting more people, but they're also more effective in building alliances and reaching their goals and in encouraging people who are part of the system that they're fighting to sign up for their cause. When movements turn violent, even if they just have violent flanks, they lose support pretty easily. I think we saw this with the January 6th cause when we saw conservative politicians start to veer off and denounce the movement on January 6th. It's not easy to gain support for causes that become violent. Right. And we see this even in Seattle, where we see progressives sort of denouncing activists who have turned violent. Yeah, no, it's interesting, too, I think, because there is a piece of this that, you know, it's very contemporary right now, I think. And it'll be interesting to see for all of these things, Seattle or D.C., like, how are they viewed through the prism of history, like even just mm-hmm. thinking of like the March on Washington and Martin Luther mm-hmm. King's speech, and you know, that there's a national holiday for it and he's got a memorial on the National Mall and things. But like, you know, if if you talk to, to President Kennedy at the time or certainly J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI, you know, mm-hmm. he was not a, a mainstream uh, lauded figure at the time. You know, mm-hmm. he was he was somebody that I think my my understanding of it was seen more as a troublemaker, you know, things like that, at least to the establishment. And, you know, it, it's only over the course of history that people say, whoa, that was a really, you know, seminal moment. And, you know, thank God he made that speech and things started to change. But at least is that is that a fair categorization, you think? Oh, I think that's definitely fair. You know, Kennedy called King and tried to get him to cancel yeah. the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And they were scared. They were afraid that Kennedy administration was afraid that so many black people in Washington, D.C. would end up rioting. And so they offered help with security, believe it or not. Fired Rustin, who engineered that march, by the way, was the one who was primarily responsible for keeping security. And he did a great job by uh, making sure that that march had a lot of nonviolent uh, marshals would deal with any violence that happened to arise. But yeah, at that time, uh, King was seen as a troublemaker, even by the Kennedy administration. J. Edgar Hoover saw him as a communist yeah. uh, who needed to be denounced. And that's why he bugged King's hotel room and did everything he could to uh, color him as a depraved person, as a communist who is about to overthrow the country. But yeah, in retrospect, we see that as bizarre absurd. We see King as somebody who really advanced civil rights for this country and gave his life doing so. Uh, History helps us, I think, sometimes become more reasonable and rational than we were in the heat of the moment. Mm. On sort of that point of, you know, you talk about being afraid of lots of black people in D.C. or something like that. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we, you talk about the March on Washington. You talk about uh, Birmingham before that, um, the student strikes in East Los Angeles, uh, and, you know, even some of the modern day things like like the George Floyd protests. It does paint the picture of America as a very racist country. <laughs> and, you know, we mentioned briefly the, the Asian-American, um, you know, concerns in that community now around the killings in Atlanta, you know, a week or two ago. Like, I don't know. I, I just feel like... So many of these individual conversations, whether it's, you know, AAPI Solidarity or Black Lives Matter, they're fine on their own, but without dealing with the bigger issue of of white supremacy and and really looking at that, I I just feel like that's kind of the elephant in the room that is sitting on top of all of those issues. 
Well, I don't know how I can add to that other than saying you're absolutely right about that. It is the issue that never goes away. It's been with us since before the United States was founded. It was on these shores and it continues right up to the present moment. And I think the discrimination against Asian Americans is a perfect, unfortunately, a perfect example. What's really interesting about this this protest, this most recent protest on behalf of Asian Americans, is that Asian Americans often get left behind when we look at protest history and even racism in the United States. But there's a, there was a movement in the 1960, late 1960s called the Yellow Power Movement that hardly anybody knows about. Yeah. We know about the Black Power Movement. Uh, there was also a Red Power Movement. There was a Brown Power Movement. There was a Yellow Power Movement. I think historically we've seen Asian Americans as people who haven't been inclined to protest, who have been quiet and submissive, and that's simply not the case. You can look at protests and the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II, and we see them certainly now. We saw them in the 60s as well. By we, I mean white Americans. You see uh, the Yellow Power Movement in the 1960s, and, and that movement has continued in one form or another up until this present day. But yeah, that has largely been a hidden movement in history. Do you think that the increased attention, whether on the Asian American community or, you know, black lives over the last, you know, I mean, I guess 10 years, really, since Trevon Martin, like having these conversations in having them more as a national dialogue, I guess, does that help propel the causes forward? I hope so. I tend to be optimistic about these things. So when we look at protest history, People end up usually saying, we really haven't moved the needle very far. Mm. But I go back to John Lewis, and John Lewis often said that we've come a long way. Sure. And he would, and he knew better than anybody else in the black protest movement. This was a guy who saw the signs that didn't allow black kids to drink from water fountains for white people only. He knew that there were swimming pools that had to be drained after black kids could swim in them one day out of the entire week. You know, he was beaten himself uh, for protests, and he knew that the country had made significant progress on issues of race. But he also knew from the Black Lives Matter movement alone and from cases like Trevon Martin and so forth, that the country still has a long ways to go. So he he straddled that uh, protest history by saying, look how far we've come. Yeah. Let's have hope. Let, let's be optimistic that we can go a long way again. But look, oh my God, we have a long way to go. But let's not lose faith. Let's not lose hope because we have come a long way and we can go a long way and we need to go a long way. I loved Lewis's perspective on protest history. Yeah. Well, and I mean, just sort of looking at, as you say, from being, you know, one of the protesters to being part of the establishment at the end of his life, you know, to be a long serving congressman, that's a. Uh, that's quite the trajectory. <laughs> you know, this is, and Lewis is a great example for looking at the importance of moving from protest to politics as well. Mm. In the 1960s, Byard Rustin wrote this great essay, or at least he co-wrote this great essay called From Protest to Politics. And it talks about the importance of moving from the streets 
into the corridors of power. Mm. And in this case, at this time, Rustin was calling for his fellow protesters to move off the streets and to form alliances, in this case with the Democratic Party, with the Johnson administration, in order to fight the war on poverty. And that's exactly what Rustin did. And this is an important lesson, I think, for kids and adults to remember that sometimes it's important to get off the streets and to build alliances with those who have power, who have access to resources, the type of resources we need in order to advance the goals that we're embracing. So I hope that kids and adults who are listening to this will remember that the establishment is the establishment, yes, but they have the resources that we need, and sometimes we need to build alliances with them, that it's important for us to stand not just against them, but also with them so that we can move the needle forward. Yeah, and and become a part of it, perhaps, as you're saying. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. Um, I, I want to ask you, too, you know, your work, um, you're a professor um, of religious studies and peace and conflict studies, which is really fascinating to me, just sort of all that that encompasses. And, you know, thinking about sort of the role in the church at different points in in protest and, and social justice, you know, obviously, we've talked about Dr. King and, and sort of how he used his platform as a minister to advance causes. But, you know, just a week or so ago, the Pope came out and said the Catholic Church cannot bless same-sex unions. And there's certainly, I think, been over the last, you know, 20 or 30 years, a push in, you know, far-right evangelical churches anyways to really kind of double down, I guess, on on racism and, and nationalism and things like that. And, you know, I guess I just wonder, like, from your perspective and, and having studied all these different angles, when is the church a force for good and when is it a force for bad? You know, the church, like all institutions, is a complete mess. It really is. Let's just look at the <laughs> let's just look at the Catholic case that you mentioned. Yes, the Catholic Church came out and made what I consider to be an awful statement last week about yeah. not blessing same sex marriages or unions, civil unions. I'm not quite sure what the language was. But at the same time, I know the Catholic Church does really excellent work in social justice matters as they're related to poverty and unemployment and so forth. And here I'm thinking about the witness of Dorothy Day and the Catholic Worker Movement, which is on the margins of the Catholic Church, no doubt. But the Church itself has done remarkable work in in charitable institutions and in terms of employment and poverty. I really do believe that. Uh, And the Church is to be praised for that, and it's not to be praised on some of its conservative social issues. So the Church, I think the Catholic Church, like the Protestant Church, is a mess. You know, Karl Marx said that religion is the opiate of the masses, and I think he was largely right about that. Mm. For much of its history, the Church has pointed uh, people who have been suffering to the sweet by and by, to the pie in the sky, to heaven, and sort of encouraged them to ignore the resources on earth that they weren't enjoying. I think we're seeing a change in that. I don't think it delivers the uh, opiates as much as it used to. It still does, but not as much as it used to. Marx also said that the religion is the sigh of the oppressed. And and I like this part of Marx. I think he's right about this. I think church and faith communities give people who are oppressed and marginalized an opportunity to come together and sigh mm. and and express their disappointment with their lives. It gives them an outlet for being in touch with one another, for example, and sighing. And I really love that part 
of the church and of religion in general. Nevertheless, these churches and institutions and faith communities have a really long way to go. For many years, I was part of the United Methodist Church, which is very conservative on social issues, but like the Catholic Church is really progressive on issues of poverty and employment. It'd be nice to find a church or a faith community that is right on everything. I'm not just sure that one exists. Yeah. You know, even the division between clergy and laity, Heath, uh, to me is problematic in the sense that it creates a hierarchy and prevents laity from accessing things like the words of institution that magically make the sacrament a sacrament. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I, I want to wrap up with just, you know, getting back to kids for a minute, too, and, you know, talking about kid protest movements. You know, one image that came to mind as I, I was preparing for this interview, uh, I don't know if you saw this, there was some video footage, I think out of maybe Montana. It was uh, a group of uh, students uh, on a, the stairs of a state house with like a little bonfire um, throwing masks into this bonfire. And, you know, just, I mean, they were probably like eight or 10 years old, but. Um, it felt like being egged on by their parents. And certainly for me, you know, that was my interpretation. And I think as we've sort of talked about, you can view all these different things through different lenses. Like as I see that, I say, oh boy, you know, that that's no good. But like on any protest movement, I guess, how do you determine what is coming from the kids and when the kids are being used kind of as pawns, I guess, if that makes sense. Oh, that does make sense. Let me talk a little bit about conditioning and indoctrination, if I can. Sure. So from an early age, we indoctrinate our kids. Uh, In my case, I sent our kids to, my wife and I, Karen, sent our kids to public school. And from day one, they were conditioned there, right? They were conditioned to stand for the national anthem, to pledge their allegiance not to me, for God's sake, but, yeah. to the, but to the flag of the United States of, of America. And so they were conditioned to become patriots. I'll never forget the time my older son came home and said he had a new favorite song. And I asked him what it was. And he stood there with his arms down next to him. And he, he sang, My Country Tis of Thee. And it was he had tears in his eyes. And I thought, oh, my God, they've made him a patriot. <laughs> and that's, he did. that's exactly what they did. We condition, and we more generally, we condition our kids to obey. So listen to your teacher, obey the principal, yeah. do what they say. Uh, we are constantly indoctrinating our kids. Uh, those parents who take their children to church or to synagogue or to communities of faith are indoctrinating their kids into religious ideologies. Those of us who sit by the TV and cheer for Joe Biden to win or indoctrinating our kids in political ideologies. For me, the question always comes down to what ideology are you indoctrinating your kid into? Are you indoctrinating them into peace and justice and human dignity, the traditional values and principles that are associated with U.S. democracy? Are you indoctrinating them into intolerance and bigotry? To me, it always comes down to that question, Heath. And so when I look at kids who are progressive protests, I celebrate that because they're advancing peace and justice and human dignity. When I look at kids who are at protests that seem to be celebrating intolerance and bigotry and the lack of health, I denounce that. I really do. Do I think that kids are pawns in protests? Sometimes, yeah, I do. Uh, But I'm always surprised at 
how much agency kids express, even at a young age. Uh, you know, some of these protests that I've studied include protests that were led by kids in their teen years and even younger, and they express incredible agency, incredible responsibility when I read their words. So I think that young kids express more agency than we give them credit for. But I think all kids have been indoctrinated by adults in their lives. And for me, the most important question is, what exactly are we teaching our kids? Are we teaching them peace, justice, and human dignity? Or are we teaching them intolerance and bigotry? All right, there we go. Michael G. Long. Incredible stuff there. Kids on the March is an incredible book. I hope you will check it out. I am fascinated by his work. I want to read all of his books for adults now, too. But Kids on the March was great. And again, you don't have to be a kid to read it. It's something that you can enjoy as an adult. And it's a nice kind of uh, easy introduction to protest movements and things like that. And as I told him, I'm going to share it with my daughter, probably in another two or three years here when she's old enough to start taking in these stories, because I want her to have that foundation. I want her to have that understanding and recognize that importance of using her voice. I have new episodes of Quarantine Creatives every Thursday. Make sure you hit the subscribe button in your favorite podcast player so you can come back for that. And I also have a newsletter that comes out on Sundays. This Sunday's issue will recap my interview with Michael. So if you're not already on that list, go to heathrasella.com and enter your email address. You'll get the newsletter every Sunday. I'm at Heath Rasella on Twitter and Instagram. Give me a follow. Give me a like. Give me a comment. All that good stuff. Let's stay safe, guys. The end is in sight. Get those vaccines. Wear your mask. Stay safe. <laughs>